Attention! The following podcast may contain topics not suitable for a younger audience. Also, anything discussed on this program is subject to being spoiled, so if you don't want to be spoiled, we'll try our best, but no promises. For more information on Borderline podcast episodes or Borderline panels events, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash borderline panels. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Borderline Podcasts from Borderline Panels. I'm Austin, the host of Borderline Podcasts, uh, here again with Sully. Hello, hello. How are you, Sully, today? I had to work a five-hour shift, and that sounds easy, Mm -hmm. but I have learned that customers are stupid. Oh, well, I'm (laughs) very sorry to hear that, and I hope that it gets better. Um, We're also here with uh, two new uh, additions to the Borderline Podcast lineup. Uh, two guys that have done panels for us before in the past. They're regular Borderline members. I'm going to introduce you guys to Ryan. Hello. How's it going, Ryan? Doing well. That's good. And we have Bill with us today as well. hi How are you today, Bill? I'm doing pretty well. Cool. Well, as you guys can probably tell from the title of this podcast, uh, our topic for today is going to be Gynax's 1988 classic OVA gunbuster that we all have uh, watched fairly recently. Uh, I had seen it a couple of years ago, but uh, none of these other guys had seen it. Wait, we're um, discussing Gunbuster. Man, I prepped for Fruits Basket. I watched the wrong show. Oh, dang, dude. Well, I guess we'll have to cancel this episode. Yep. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. All right. Later. You, you funny man with, with, <laughs> with, with your jokes. But um, before we get into Fruits Basket, I mean, uh, Gunbuster, um, just want to go around real quick. Everybody, uh, just talk a little bit about uh, what you've been doing lately, catch up a little bit, um, talk about like what shows you might be watching, or comics, or whatever, or video games you've been playing. So, Ryan, what have you been entertaining yourself with lately? I've been having very little sleep, because I decided recently it was a good idea when uh, Kingdom Hearts 1.5, 2.5 came out to replay all the games. So I just finished one point f- or uh, Kingdom Hearts 1 Final Mix. Mm-hmm. I've been playing Final Fantasy 15 as well as reading a large assortment of DC comics. Cool. Uh, what comics are standing out to you the most right now? Flash is really good right now. Uh, Batman's doing all right. Titans is good as always. And Flash and Batman are actually about to tie into the Rebirth plot. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think I should get into details about that because I'll be here for like days. <laughs> yeah, we just want to keep it brief. But yeah, you've been reading some comics. Yeah. It's going to be our second uh, spinoff podcast, the <laughs> comics podcast. Bill and Ryan talk about comics for days. <laughs> uh, not off the table. Um, something to keep in mind, maybe, if the if the fans want that. But uh, Sully, what have you been entertaining yourself with lately? Comics or manga or um, anime, whatever. Well, I am just like coming out of like uh, one of my depressive episodes. So that usually means I've gone long periods of time with doing nothing. I have spent my time lying in bed listening to Chill Hop and questioning my existence. But nothing wrong with that. I mean, yeah, that's just, it's typical. As soon as, like, the winter months hit, I'm ready to stop everything. And it's kind of funny. I was, man, I managed to track how long I had been in the state because I'm a big fan of Blue Exorcist and the Kyoto Arc second season came out. 
I was really excited for it when it was announced. It came out, and I was like, I just don't feel good. I'm not, I'll, I'll wait to watch for, for the first episode. I'll wait to watch the second, and then it's over. It literally just ended, like, maybe a week or two, depending on when this comes out. And I was like, oh, wait, this show I really love, I kind of missed the entire thing because I was just apparently watching anime is too tiring. So now I'm playing catch-up, but uh, other than watching Gunbuster, I've mostly been reading more manga. Again, it's uh, I'm really into this series called Samun-kun is a Summoner. It's a comedy about a girl who goes to middle school and one of her classmates claims he can summon demons and she thinks he's lying, he's just an attention seeker. Uh, he's not lying and he's so, like just petty about the fact that she didn't believe him that he's personally decided to make her life a living hell just because he's that kind of person and it's my favorite thing is there's a panel with him smiling saying i hate you i feel that <laughs> so much i want that panel tattooed on me like on my heart my literal beating heart it's like getting that scene from gundam wing tattooed on you where he's just like will you come to my birthday I'll kill you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, pretty much. So I'm, I'm playing catch-up. And also, uh, my beloved Time Boken 24, I'm weeks behind. And I, I need the, the, the evil trio from that to bring the joy back into my heart. Uh, in <laughs> case any listeners out there have no idea what Sully is talking about when he mentions Time Boken, uh, this will be the first time he mentions it, but not the last, and you still will not have heard about it, or heard of it, even when he's talked about it before. It's pretty so, accurate, yeah. It's his favorite uh, unknown franchise. But uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll do Speaking a podcast. Speaking of unknown franchises... Yeah. Uh, Bill, uh, do you want to talk about a little bit about what you've been uh, either playing or reading these days? Sure. Um, currently, I am in the Hearthstone grind. The... Blizzard card game right now. The new expansion's coming out. So I pre-ordered that and then waiting for April 6th for when that gets released. And play, I play that every day. I love it. Um, I am also waiting for One Piece filler to be over with so that way we can get to Sanji's arc, which I am excited about. And I am also starting... I'm also watching Lupin the Third stuff as per usual. Mm-hmm. Um, rewatching Red Jacket or Green Jacket. I kind of go in between those two. Yeah, Bill is our resident Lupin the Third ex- uh, expert. That is that is his alley, his franchise. means a lot to him. Yeah, also, as sure. of the recording of this podcast, Persona 5 is two days away from release. Woo! And we're all excited for that. Yes, indeed. Uh, I have never gotten through a Persona game, but I'm really enticed by Persona Five. So maybe I'll maybe I'll pick that up. Thank you for making me feel better. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm actually the only person here who has gotten through uh, both three and four. They're mm. both they're both incredible games. The only problem that I have with the Persona franchise is once you go to like the next number game, it's pretty difficult to go back because they make a lot of improvements every time. Mm. So if you really, if you're a person who's never played Persona before, start with three, go to four, then play five. Otherwise, you'll never be able to experience the great stories of three or four. And they're mm-hmm. both two of my favorite games. Mm-hmm. I See, definitely want to check out the Persona Three uh, anime film trilogy. I don't know if I have the energy to sit through those that entire game, but uh, well, the uh, film trilogy is pretty good. Granted, mm-hmm. I'm still waiting for number three to come out. Oh, it's not out yet. Okay. No, that it's been like it's been horrible for Persona fans because one came out like God knows how long ago at this point. Three, uh, sorry, two came out 
about three years ago at this mm-hmm. point. We are still waiting on the third one. Dang. See, I'm a hardcore Nintendo baby, and so I really wanted Breath of the Wild, but I've had to spend my money on adult things. I just put down a down payment on a new apartment and paid off like a lease and a holding fee and all that, so I did not get a Switch when it released. I have turned in credit at a store that I'm hoping to build up so I can get Breath of the Wild, and it's so hard because all my friends are huge Zelda nerds too, and they have it, and I'm like... I, every conversation I have with them, like, if we speak of it, I will shut down the conversation, I will leave, because I want to experience the magic myself, and, uh, my friend Austin, not this Austin, Dr. Austin. Not me. That we have two Austins, <laughs> one of, is my friend who lives in California, who visits occasionally, and one is our host Austin. Hello. Uh, Dr. Austin, who is my Austin. Uh, was telling me that he accidentally caused his horse to commit suicide, which is apparently a glitch in the game. It's really, it's oh, no. really funny. It's, and, and he was, he said, well, well, Sully, I was playing the game and I got off the horse and it committed suicide. And I said, well, Austin, everything you get off tries to kill itself. So, you know, oh, geez. Geez. so that was my punishment for trying to take away the magic of me, you know, throwing my horse off a cliff in Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Well, Sully, don't worry. Nintendo produces one Nintendo Switch each month <laughs> so as somebody who is lucky enough to get a nintendo switch and just spent the last month sinking 100 plus hours into that game it's good all right shout out to breath of the wild yeah you totally didn't even mention that when i asked yeah you i totally forgot playing. about it because i've been i haven't played it for like a week now because i just i, I put 100 hours into it like in a very short amount of time so i pretty i burned out on it because i just i did everything so what you're telling me is you put 100 hours into it out of a hundred hours? Yes. Okay. Didn't you just say you were the math person in this group? <laughs> I mean, I did math for this episode, but we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do have some math, you guys, because Gunbuster does deal with some uh, interesting math, and I'm sure Ryan has, a, has his thoughts on that. To sum it up in a very easy-to-understand way, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Please Shout out to Doctor that. Who. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, we're gonna go ahead and jump into our Gunbuster discussion today. Would you stop fiddling around? You're gonna give me an anxiety attack. I accidentally dropped a pen for those Pick of you who don't I'm know. kidding. Um, um, so yeah, um, Gunbuster, um, is a 1988 OVA, uh, series, uh, from Studio Gynax. Um, 1988 was a really, really big, very dense year for anime, um, Gunbuster is one of those titles that if you talk about the 1988 sort of like anime explosion, um, gets referenced a lot. Um, it came out the same year as Akira, it came out, um, Grave of the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro came out as a double feature in theaters. Uh, Char's Counterattack, the really popular Gundam film, uh, the original Appleseed OVA, I think it was an OVA either. Yeah, it was. An OVA, okay, just making sure. Uh, Demon City Shinjuku from the director of Ninja Scroll. Um, Legend of the Galactic Heroes started this year. Ooh. Oh dear. <laughs> Pat Labor started this year. Vampire Princess Miyu came out this year. So 1988 was like pretty incredible. It's like the 2011 of the 80s. Well, this the, is... the 1939 for anime. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, a, that's a way to put it. Well, yeah. this was during the Japan bubble when everyone had money. To spend, so... Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. You know, and happiness rained from the skies. <laughs> Before the economic crash of the 90s in Japan. Yeah. 
And uh, this was a, a rare time where, like, OVAs were king whenever they had never really been a thing much before. Most anime was um, just TV broadcast stuff that was made to be long form. And then the OVA format um, came out. And Gainax was a studio that really helped popularize that um, with stuff like Gunbuster, for example, and, uh, like, Otaku no Video and uh, a couple other projects that they did. But, we were um, actually just having a discussion the other day about how the OVA format might be making a resurgence in the next coming years because people people are kind of getting tired of the like 26 episode seasons and six episodes is a lot easier to digest and it's a lot easier to binge. So mm-hmm. people actually might watch more series if they were a lot shorter. And in a different way, we've sort of seen that with, a, with an uptick in short shows. Like stuff like um, Space Patrol Luluco being really successful, um, and it, those are just seven minute episodes. Yeah, I can't understand what my husband is saying. That's three. That's, e- that's yeah. three minutes. It's even shorter. You can finish a whole season in like uh, forty five minutes or so. What yeah. was that show that we, you guys came over to my apartment and we all watched it in one sitting? It was the girls with uh, the plastic models. And, oh, uh, Plastic Nissan. Yeah, Plastic uh, Nissan. Yeah. That was, or that was you something. called it Plastic Nissan, and we all just sort of stared at you. <laughs> yes, the Plastic <laughs> Nissan. No, yeah. no metal, no metal parts at all. The tires are, are plastic too. Uh, the seats are plastic. Yeah. Um, the glass is plastic. The driver's plastic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, Sully, you volunteered to sort of tell us what Gunbuster is about. So, in uh, fifteen sentences or less, uh, give or take. Uh, introduce Gunbuster to us. So in the far-flung year of 2015, society has come across these uh, creatures from outer space who mindlessly threaten the existence of humanity. And so we, and by we I mean Japan, has developed these schools to build up young uh, fighters to go into space and stop this alien menace. And we follow a girl named Noriko and uh, her classmates and her coach as they uh, go through personal drama and there's also some aliens and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums up the, uh, the basic premise of, of Gunbuster. Or Aim for the Top, as oh. it was called in Japan, but also yes. called Gunbuster. <laughs> Fun fact about Aim for the Top, it's actually a, a combination of an old uh, tennis anime called Aim for the Ace yep. and Top Gun. Which yep. uh, Otto was a huge, huge fan of Top Gun, and the plot was heavily inspired by it. I yeah. see you read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> I have read the Wikipedia um, article. It's a great place to start. Well, if you had read the Wikipedia article, it would show that it wasn't written by Otto. It was uh, well, it was it was it was co-written by Otto, so he had a lot to do with the way Gunbuster uh, ended up. But uh, the screenplay and the sort of concept was uh, created by Toshio Okada, who is one of the I think seven founding members of Gainax. Um, he basically he's a he's a really interesting guy because he his deal was never so much about making anime, but just being an otaku and sort of turning that into a career. Because like when he was younger, he worked in his parents' store where he would sell like anime merchandise and sort of like create this community, this sort of weird mecca around anime and this early otaku um, climate and then you know he went to the same school as you know Ano and um, Shinji Higuchi and all those guys so they were like they became the collective Gainax together 
and he conceived of Gunbuster um, and wrote the script, and then he also did like Otaku New Video, and he worked on uh, Royal Space Force a little bit before that, and then basically after Otaku No Video, he sort of faded into more of like the anime criticism world, and he wrote like 12 books all about like otakudom and one book about being married <laughs> and like he's, so he's a really interesting guy like there's tons and tons of videos out there of him just talking about anime and like what it means to be an otaku and um it's it's kind of interesting he's one of those like real first generation otaku people that sort of created that that label and that brand and really went with it and it's also weird that he created Gunbuster, which was sort of a very, like, otaku explosion anime, because it's got, like, all of these references, and it's like an amalgamation of a hundred different styles of anime all into one. You talk about, you know, not just being an anime creator, but making otaku into a profession, so kind of like what we're doing right now, isn't it? Mm, <laughs> kind <yeah>. of. <laughs> but I was actually reading, it's semi-related about like the sort of development of the idea of otaku culture it's actually mm -hmm. because i was researching anno uh i am the one person in this panel who has yet to finish evangelion it's and, okay and, yeah it's it's just every time i watch it i have to take like a breather i'm like because it, it really i'm i'm one of those people that anytime i watch something i really like the emotions really like impact me so ava is kind of like it's like a full frontal assault when yeah. you do that. <laughs> I, and I, I can attest to that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was just doing some research on Anno. Um, very fascinating person. Like, I really just wanted to find as much English material on him as I could. And I just remember reading, like, the development of the word otaku and the idea of the culture. There was this article that was written in a magazine for otaku. It was It was some sort of, like... Uh, erotic like Lolita magazine but they had like an opinion piece that this guy who was like a comedian in Japan wrote saying oh yeah I went to Comic Hit full of all these freaks and maniacs but the best word for them is otaku because that's how they talk apparently it's not just like the formal for you or your house it's also like the manner of speaking is weirdly formal and like like awkward and nerdy and that's where the word comes from he's like that's how they are so that's what we should call them and they just sort of took that and ran with it mm -hmm. and oh, uh, i think people like ano and the rest of the gynex founders really took that is and said no this is something you should be proud of mm -hmm. in a way there's still kind of like how we in the west will say weeaboo as like i know that i use it as a jokingly endearing way saying okay come on weebs or let's you know hit it weebs or something like that but then there's some people I'm like, look at that weeaboo. Like, <laughs> yeah. so it, I feel like it must be something similar in Japan. There, people are like, yeah, I'm an otaku. Like, that's just who I am. I'm proud of it. And then they're at the same time, they're like, can you believe that otaku over there? I'm like, <laughs> I really love that kind of like, I'm not one of those mm -hmm. jokes. It's like, like I'm not one of those girls. I'm not one of those <laughs> those like lollycons or like like freaks who can't go out in public, which I don't think any of us really can go out in public without embarrassing ourselves. You so. can't sit with us. <laughs> us at every con. <laughs> no, just kidding. You guys are always welcome at our table, I promise. You, you, you won't want to take us up on that invitation. But <laughs> You're always there. welcome. The fact that you mentioned that he like wanted to make it an endearing thing that you're an otaku though is kind of similar to how it's happened here in the states lately like i remember in middle school you were like immediately ostracized socially if you were like a nerd of any kind and like actually legitimately enjoyed 
like anime or something like nowadays the nerd community especially like in north carolina specifically has exploded like people have so much pride in being a nerd and will like wear t-shirts that literally just say like basically i'm a nerd and proud of it and mm-hmm. stuff like that just it's basically the same thing and just mm-hmm. i don't i'm kind of surprised well, that it took us this long when japan's been pretty proud of it for years now nerds in, really in came a way. out of the closet here didn't they yeah more or less <laughs> well i think it also helped that a lot of the nerd things such as superheroes and uh franchises like kind of harry potter made nerd culture mainstream yeah so the kind of the things that were once seen as like oh i shouldn't talk about this uh they've gained a massive following and it's big business now Mm -hmm. i remember i remember when the marvel movies came out when iron man came out almost like 10 years ago now like god i can't believe it's been 10 years like people started reading comics a whole lot more because they really liked iron man the movie and they're like wait comics are for adults i didn't (laughs) know this Surprise! Yeah. Um. So bringing it back to to Gunbuster a little bit. Um. You know, I I had seen back when I first watched Gunbuster, I had watched Evangelion beforehand, and you know I, I was you know not as not as into um sort of like anime history at at that point. Um. But I sort of got introduced to Gunbuster by just reading more about Hideaki Anno. And then thought, oh, he did this really short OVA in the 80s called Gunbuster. Oh, this premise sort of sounds like like a Ava Gurren Lagann hybrid thing. Uh, so I definitely I checked it out, and then I watched it and thought, gosh, you know, a lot of the ideas that Anno came up with and used later in Ava, he sort of used this as his testing ground um, to sort of figure out if those ideas would work or not. Yeah, um... Especially in the way the characters' personalities are, and kind of the the look of the of the show, mm-hmm. um, especially like um, the sh- the ship that they're in for most of the anime, their the bridge very much looks like the nerve base, yeah, um, with the big arching. Uh, what do you call it? The, the kind of the arch where uh, Gendo sits, yeah, and yeah. the escalators and how their subways also. <laughs> Which is a common thing in Ava, mm-hmm. and I could also see the characters in Gunbuster being uh, an influence on Ava. I saw um, who's the name of the main character? Noriko. Noriko um, was very much like Shinji, and how she wasn't very confident, and how she was doing in this new role, um, and also Coach kind of reminded me of Gendo and how he's very secretive. Mm-hmm. He had a little bit of Mitsuru in him as well. Like, he was still encouraging while still, like, Mis- very, Misada, very... you mean? Yes, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, yeah. Also, Gunbuster, the mech itself, looked very, very much like an Ava unit. It had, like, the very yeah. stereotypical eye that... Yeah. Yeah. It, it looks like a more 80s version of an Ava. Kinda. Yeah. It's very clunky, very Gundam-ish. Which is totally. I, I noticed a lot of the robots actually did that. I think it was episode three or something where she got up, she got uh, dared to go walk around while they were on lockdown, yeah. and she saw a couple of the robots, and mm. I immediately was just like, "Oh, those look basically like the inside of an Ava." Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, with like the big star-shaped crest on the gun buster, it really does kind of feel like an OVA that was geared towards Mekotaku because mm-hmm. it really does look like 
if someone were to say, like, Japanese robot, I would picture something that looks like the Gunbuster. Like, it's very clunky, and the details are very lovingly drawn, and it has, like, the vid- big, fancy, almost tokusatsu-style crest on the front. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of funny, because uh, Ano mm-hmm. is, like, a curator of uh, tokusatsu costumes and props and miniatures, mm-hmm. so you can kind of see some of his love for that genre, too, bleed into this. You see a lot of the sort of uh, uh, over-the-top melodrama uh, I know there's one point where, uh, where, uh, what is her name? Amano, mm-hmm. uh, Onesama, is saying, no, I don't want to team up with Noriko, and then she over, like, she realizes that Noriko's overheard her, and then there's a, da-da, like, <laughs> yeah. loudly, and I just, I wanted to hear, like, a woman faint and glass, like, grasp her pearls <laughs> in the back. Uh-huh. It's that melodrama of, like, tokusatsu, which is very, uh... Uh, because it's stylized for kids, and it's almost like an art form unto itself, it's very, mm-hmm. like... There are moments I could see this could be, like, a live-action, very, not campy, but, like, the emotions are very loud, and they're not very subtle. No, definitely not. When they're sad, they're sad. When they're happy, they're happy. Like, they wear everything on their sleeves in this show. Definitely. There was was one part where, like, they used the dun-dun, like, very, very dramatically, and honestly, I didn't entirely understand why. It was the scene after where they're going to the big, big space battle right before the epilogue. And uh, Kazumi tells Noriko, like, hey, Coach is dying and he probably isn't going to be here by the time we get back. Ta-da! But <laughs> it's like she had that like moment. But Noriko knew that because not five minutes earlier, she picked Coach up off the ground while he was coughing up blood. Yeah. So I was like, you weren't supposed to tell her that he was dying. But she already knew, yet you're still acting like you had no earthly idea. Well, I think I think that she had that reaction because she didn't realize that um, Amano knew. Well, yeah, but she still acted like, oh my god, he's sick, we're never yeah. going to see him again. I was like, you were literally cleaning his blood off of him not like ten minutes ago. After she, after he slapped her, and you're like not very shocked about it. It's like she gets <laughs> shot, like she sees the slap third anime i've seen the slap in like the last few days oh, wow. <laughs> we watched the first episodes of utina with andrew on saturday and uh so i'm getting kind of used to bitch slaps in anime now <laughs> and the funny thing is it happens and then it's never brought up again it's like oh oh wait you're on the floor oh oh wait you're sick oh <laughs> yeah that's i kind of had a weird uh I was not a big shipper of Amano and the coach, honestly. No. I don't, I don't no, know if anybody really was. There was more chemistry between Noriko and Smith, and he didn't last very long. Oh, oh. oh. Smithsu. Uh, that, that, that is a drinking game in itself, the amount of times that she says Smithsu. She is yeah. so thirsty for him, and like she's mourning him. I'm like, you knew him for a grand total of a day. Well, I thought that also, like, he was, she was like, yeah, saying Smithsu, like, so much. I thought that he he would be like a major influence for her going forward for the rest of the show and after the episode where he died he is never brought up yeah. again no, he is no entirely she drunk. has the headband she has the headband but he is never mentioned and she, again and there's a point where she's like oh they're like uh, Amano and Kochi are together I, I'm gonna do this for you, Smith, and I'm just like, you knew him for a day! <laughs> that, that's, that's, there are other men in the world! That, that's one problem I think I have with this OVA series. Overall, I think it's good, but some of its ideas are very half-baked. Yeah. Uh, mm. Like, for example, um, 
the redhead who comes in who's young the, Freud. Yeah, <laughs> young Freud from Soviet Union. At first, she's the redhead like, who is Russian. Who is God. Russian? Who who is uh, very much like I am the rival. I will show that I am superior to all of you. And then immediately after their kind of battle, yeah, the next episode. Oh, I want to be friends. Yeah. Can Morgan yeah. my birthday party? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> that wasn't even the next episode. That was it, like... The same it, it was the end yeah. of that episode. It was, that it was, was episode pretty much, two. Yeah. yeah. Granted, there was technically like a six-month time hop, and those two had like completed a mission for them, so it was like, welcome back, you did a great job. But, yeah. If we want to talk about half-baked ideas, though, I definitely want to talk about time displacement in this show. Okay, well, we'll get to that once we get through a little bit more things towards, towards the... Uh, discussion about like the end of the show okay um but um there were a lot of pretty famous voice actors in this show mm-hmm. um i know i kind of went through the credits and uh noriko is played uh by i can't read my own handwriting <laughs> um noriko hidaka i think she's also the voice actor in totoro she's one of the two girls and it's funny mm-hmm. because in the scene where noriko is back on earth uh, she has a Totoro poster in her bedroom. She does. She and, has, and a Nausicaa poster. She has a Totoro poster, a Nausicaa poster, and a, a Van Halen poster. A Van Halen poster and a Space Battleship Yamato poster. Oh, I didn't notice that. So, you know, I wanted to talk about that. I, I wrote specific notes about this specific scene. So let's 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 examine this for a moment. So in episode five, the year that that episode takes place in is twenty thirty two. Um, but it's Noriko's room from, you know, ten years before, I would assume. I'm gonna assume that that was her room. So, it was her room from 2022. And the Van Halen poster is dated 2021. So, we have to assume that Noriko is a fan of old school anime and old school rock bands. <laughs> that, or in this world, Van Halen is still, like, one of the biggest bands. Head in the jars exactly. from Futurama, like, still singing. Exactly. It's something like that. So, either, you know, we're just supposed to assume that all of these things are new, I suppose, or we just get to assume that Noriko has a soft spot for old school She's anime. She's a hipster. I guess so. <laughs> That's one of the things is this series, even though it takes place in 2015, you know, and I kept thinking, wow, this this is so disappointing. We didn't live up to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we should have had space fleets right now. Insects attacking us. Yeah, it like, was, God, 2015 the, was such a letdown compared to what was in this show. But it was so 80s-rific. I know the outfits they wear inside the mechs, like those weird, like, gym outfits, like the pink spandex. I just mm-hmm. kept thinking, it's like, this is like that Golden Girls episode where they go to the gym. Like, <laughs> I would expect they're dressed like that. Mm-hmm. And, like, I... It was very 80s, and not just, like, the animation style, which is very much of its time. It's good, but it's very 80s, but, like, a lot of the designs of, like, the clothing and the fact that coaches dress like Tom Cruise and Top Gun, the fact that they play the Rocky, like, they do a parody of Rocky, and... Chariots of Fire. That's what it's called. So That's the song. They yeah. do yeah, the, yeah. The, the the running and the da 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 da. I didn't know the name of that movie, and I can yeah, think yeah. It, it's something about Jewish and there's running. So I googled <laughs> Jewish running movie to find out the title. I was like, oh wait, it's Chariots of Fire. You yeah. want to talk eighties? Also, you cannot forget to mention the 80s training montage that Noriko yes. went through yeah, that, with, yeah. the, with the inspirational music and mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Like, that was the most 80s thing ever, in my opinion, well, in that show. a lot of the sort of structural, you know, basis is from what you mentioned earlier is from the Aim from the Ace series, which is sort of like 
a very just old school style like sports anime, and a lot of a lot of Gunbuster, especially early on, just screams like sports anime, um, yeah. because it's like they're at a school and everything is basically the same except they pilot robots and they have to train and exercise. So it's basically track and field but with robots. Give me fifty. I also in the, a robot. <laughs> the opening scene was like them doing push ups and sit ups, and then. Basically, what I wrote down as robot cheerleaders. <laughs> they were making the pyramid, and then, like, I don't know cheerleading terms at all, so I'm going to just describe this, and if any cheerleading listeners know, please let us know what this is called. Mm-hmm. It's where you, like, lift somebody up, and they, like, do a pose. Like, there were two robots, like, hoisting each other. Yes. <laughs> and there were, like, a few sets of people doing that, and I was like, so they're doing cheerleading exercises in mechs. Okay, sure. This is a great introduction to this show. Yeah, of course. I mean, what other introduction do you need? I thought it it was, like, really funny, and I was just like, okay, you have my attention, let's go. This Mm -hmm. might be me reaching, too, but the scene, uh, I can't remember which, it's one of the space battles, and you have the, the, the commander with the beard, and the music sounds... If any of you have ever watched Mystery Science Theater, you know the the Space Mutiny episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad South African sci-fi movie. It sounded just like the opening music, the Space Mutiny, and I was like, "Are they? Is that what that's from?" It it sounds almost identical, and I thought, "Oh wait, the captain with the beard, it's Captain Santa, <laughs> just like in the movie." Oh my <laughs> that, gosh. that theme, I know which one you're talking about. It almost kind of sounded like a mix to me of Zarathustra and Mars from the planets. Yeah, like it kind of sounded like a weird amalgam of those two, but it was a really cool track. I didn't, I did like it, but yeah, I see. What you, I, I now that you mentioned that, yeah, that basically is it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a good segue. We can we can talk about the music in this show. Um, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about this composer? Um, the composer. Oh, I'm missing his name. Uh, the composer. He went on to do a lot of other uh, a lot of great things. He worked on the Dirty Pair. Uh, franchise overall he's worked on pretty much every one piece theatrical movie um i think he's also worked on the dragon ball z movies as well the newer ones he did uh he did something that's uh, very close to your heart oh that's I, not one piece uh, oh wait did he work on a lupin no he worked on g gundam oh, oh. That's oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I did not know that. And, when, um, when you say the Dragon Ball movies, did do you mean like the new new ones or like the newer, as in the later of the originals? I think the new new ones. Okay, hmm, interesting. Like Resurrection F. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's funny you mentioned Dragon Ball because uh, and One Piece because one thing I noted, I was like, I have to tell Bill this is uh, Smisu is played uh, by Kazuki Yo, who was uh, Bomb Clay and Frankie in One Piece. Yeah. And uh, um, Coach Ohata, or Ota, I always wanted to call him Ohata, I don't Mm. know why, uh, is uh, Noriko... I can't read my own handwriting. (laughs) Uh, He was the voice of Cell in Dragon Ball Z and Vicious in Cowboy Bebop and Gustav in Bakano. Cool. Did you guys... In, in your reading about the show, did you catch how Torrin Smith got his name? No. No. So, Torrin Smith, that character, is actually named after a real-life dude named Torrin Smith. Uh, Torrin Smith was a guy in the mid-80s who was one of the first people that tried to bring manga to the U.S. Uh, so, he was like a U.S. manga distribution guy. I'm not sure what company he worked for or anything like that, but that's, that's what he did. 
and um, he was very instrumental in bringing like a lot of old school manga to the states for the first time. I can't think of the titles right off the top of my head, but I know he got, um, I think, uh, both Appleseed and Ghost in the Shell printed in the U.S. Uh, back in the late 80s. And he formed a really close bond with Gainax in their early days, to the point where he like slept on their floor in their apartment for like a couple months because like he didn't have a place to stay in Japan. So the Gainax dudes were basically like, uh, Torin-san, you can stay in our place, and they became really good friends, so Aww. they ended up naming a character after Did him. Did he also look like the love child of Vash the Stampede and Giles from Street Fighter? <laughs> Sadly, he does not. Aww. Actually, you know who he, like, had a spitting image of? Has anybody watched Seven Deadly Sins? Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. He looked exactly like... I cannot remember his name for the life of me right now, and I should have written this down. He looks like one of the characters that wears the red jacket and has the spike, the slicked back silver hair. Okay. Yeah, he he looks exactly like him in one of the scenes where he just walks up to her, and I'm just like, whoa, okay, that's a callback. Speaking of <laughs> so characters, this looks, came first, but uh, speaking of characters, looks uh, Omisama. Uh, she looked to me like a younger version of. Uh, Major uh, Major Makoto from Ava. Yeah, a little bit. Where, uh, Misato. Misato. Yeah, yeah. Man, I am horrible with the name. It's okay. <laughs> um, she, she, I could picture like, oh, this was basically Misato when she was in high school. I uh, could see it. I could. I feel like they just ripped that uh, that character design and put it in Ava. Yeah. And uh, also the coach, the way he looked. He could be in a JoJo Bizarre Adventure episode. <laughs> I thought that too, actually. Like he he had a he had a scene where he was like sitting there wearing his sunglasses, like kind of leaning back against the wall with a hat like brimmed over his eyes, and I was like, he could be a JoJo. Yada yada does it. <laughs> See, when I saw him, I thought it's the teacher from Kill a Kill, only oh, age definitely. years, and just sort of like he's he's gruff by now. He's seen way too many naked bodies, mm-hmm. and then when I saw. Uh, uh, Amano Onesama. I kept thinking of the the uh, the terrible evangelical Christian girl in the gag dub of Ghost Stories. Oh my god! That Monica Rial played. I kept. I heard Monica Rial's voice coming out of that character, like reading the subtitles. Kochi. Well, blue hair is like a trope at this point. So yeah. And about the character designs, uh, the guy who did all the character designs for the show, uh, his name I got it written down. His name is uh, Haruhiko Mikimoto. Um, you guys mentioned, or we all talked about, how this show has a very 80s aesthetic, yeah. and I think one thing that really adds to that is his character designs, because sort of what made him famous was working on the entire Macross franchise, which was like, other than Gundam, like quintessential anime mech show, mm-hmm. um, was also part of the Robotech weird Frankenstein show that that was. Uh, so it's got this very 80s look, and um, more recently, um, he worked on uh, Cabinary of the Iron Fortress, designed all of those characters. So, um, and he's got a very unique unique style, like, um, the characters are very, very, like, sort of stuck to their time period, and I think that's just because of how pervasive Macross was in the 80s, but, um... I don't know. I really like the character designs. Do you? Do you guys like them? Yeah, I thought they were good. They they actually looked really good for mm-hmm. the '80s, like given the time period. And I thought the characters were really well animated. Um, like this is something I I noted down here. Like in comparison between Gunbuster and Ava, 
Um, I think as an overall production, Gunbuster is way more consistent than Evangelion. Um, Evangelion, I mean, was of course on a you know different budget. It is a different production entirely. It was made for television, not for home video. Um, and when it's inconsistent, it shows. But you watch Gunbuster, and even though there was like some significant months of you know time difference between you know each episode being released, it stays basically pretty consistent and all there's no real dip in quality anywhere that i could really tell there were i actually did have a couple comments about the animation that i wrote down one of them this could very well be that i'm watching it on a 16 by 9 monitor in a more modern uh uh resolution but i noticed specifically one time and this happened a couple other times throughout the series they were all at the sink. This was in the first episode, and she was brushing her teeth. And I looked, and I noticed the bottom half of her torso was missing. Like, they just did not animate her having a bottom half of her torso. I have it was, no idea what scene you're talking about. <laughs> it, it was like, I, I just noticed in the bottom mm-hmm. corner, you could tell, like, there was the top half of her mm-hmm. torso, but she didn't have any legs. And they did this a couple other times, like, while they were sitting in the cockpit. Like, she had an oh. upper torso, and she did not have legs. Like, the, the cell wasn't properly aligned. When they... I have a feeling what it was is when this was in 4x3, you didn't notice it, and it just got cut off. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm watching it in, like, a modern monitor, I noticed that they didn't animate her having legs, which just was kind of funny to me. So, you watch this show in widescreen? I mean, I watched it in whatever source I could find it in. Oof. And, like, Oof. <laughs> yeah, but they also, there was also the scene on the beach where I noticed that they, for some reason, had her cheeks blushing green. That was, I had no idea what that was. I'm assuming that was <laughs> more of, like, a thing so you could notice it. And also, they did that a lot back then. Like, they just had weird colors in her splice so they would stand out. But, like, her cheek blush specifically, not even, like, when her cheeks needed to be seen blushed, they were green in like a very pale sickly green i had no idea maybe it was what they a were. stylized choice i, I thought maybe. she was sick i thought like <laughs> no. is she exerting herself too it to me that to me that registered in my mind is she was wearing face paint for no reason <laughs> and even then it wouldn't make sense i thought 80s look the right. first the first time i saw it i thought like oh maybe they just made a mistake and then they did it like three more times in like three different shots and i was like why why are her cheeks green i only noticed it that one time but yeah. um even that one time was very like what okay the all the last animation thing that i noticed the detail was really good but there were also points where like they didn't use as much detail like the fight between um kazumi and uh yung when they were fighting in space as rivals the first time they were basically just like swinging their their stabs at each other Mm -hmm. and it was like minimal effort it looked like and they were both just like alternating their arms inside the cockpits (laughs) whereas like like minimal effort in the animation Mm -hmm. then there was the scene in the next episode or so where she's calling her friend to say i'm sorry after like she figured out like you probably aren't going to be able to get on the ship to be saved Mm mm-hmm Wait, you mean the, the later, later on? Yeah, later, later on. Okay. But still on the topic of animation. And she frustratedly flung, flings herself back on her bed. Oh my gosh. And the animation quality of her shirt flying up so you can see her boobs is just so crisp that I'm like, you put more effort into this particular thing of her flinging back so her tube top or her tank top can fly up just enough to see her boobs and then gently float back down was 
way more effort than some of the fight scenes. <laughs> and right, we, we have to talk about this. What was up with that bath scene? Okay. Which one? Hold, hold that thought um, as we... Uh, <laughs> I, do, I do think that we need to talk a little bit about the fan service in this show. Yeah. Um, just so that we can cover it. Um, which includes that bath scene. Yeah. Um, oh wait, which bath scene? They're like. Are you talking about the two. one where it's all three of them, or the one where she's having like a mini existential crisis? It's all three of them. Okay. okay. Um, it it's my personal thought that that since uh, this was an OVA and they could do fan service, I think they went a little bit off the rails in experimenting with what they could do with it, and I think most of it comes off as awkward. What did you guys think? The bath scene that Bill mentioned, like, they were basically just, like, talking about gravity and their boobs for, like, two minutes, and I was just like, "Mm." and then the very last part where all the mechs are flying by and they all freak out, I thought that was hilarious. That was pretty funny, yeah. but at the same time, like, when you when they, when they you show that, like, the outside scene and there's this whole, like, glass window where the bathroom is. And yeah. Or the the bath, it's not really a bathroom, it's like a bath. Like, a tub. Like, a pool area, essentially. And it's just these massive windows where you can look in and see these naked people and I'm just like, whatever, alright. <laughs> I'm like, I expect fan service to some degree, but it's... That bath scene, you could see everything almost. Yeah, right there. yeah. Like, not even uh, where it just—I was just shocked how like, wow, you're really going for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. because it's me, but when I saw that scene, I was just like, you know, I really like a bathroom, like, or like just go like to a hotel that has like a huge glass window that looks mm-hmm. to the stars and like a big hot bath. like that'd be so relaxing. That's just so classy. I was just, oh, oh, there are boobs, but, like, I get, like, I'm to the point in my anime-watching career that whenever I see boobs, I'm like, this is not made for me, I'm gonna pay attention to something else and enjoy it, and you know what? Let them have their boobs, let them enjoy it. It's like, you know, I can go have a salad, they can have the dessert. So, from your, from your perspective... You know, the fan service in this show was noticeable, but did you find it distracting or detracting in any way? Well, to me, there's a there's a sort of a difference, I guess, is fan service, I think, is always going to be a part of anime because of who the, the genre does cater to, and that is straight otaku men. For the most part, we're yeah. seeing more changes now with a lot of sports anime having yeah, yeah. a lot of male homoerotica and things like that for females. But for me, the, the, the dividing line is, with this, it was, they weren't exaggerated. It was a kind of a natural setting. It's their girls in the bath. They're not going to be they're not gonna be wearing anything around their, their chest. Mm-hmm. They're going to be comfortable. This is something that could happen in real life. Yeah, yeah. yeah if, like, it's, if it's exaggerated, like, if it's, the, the gravity is obviously incredibly false and they're obviously, like, making a big deal out of it, then, like, this is, this, this is what men think women do when they're alone. And then this is just, right. like, I get, like, why this is titillating for someone, but not, like, it doesn't make me feel like some anime I've watched from, like, I can't watch this because it's obviously made for one reason and there actually is no plot. You know what, uh, based on that reasoning, that makes total sense i mean compared to more modern shows that are about fan service like Mm -hmm. high school dxd yeah um this is very tame in comparison yeah like i definitely thought it was very very mild and it wasn't like even it it was like tasteful in a way like when like when i described that scene where she was like laying back on her bed it like showed her chest a couple times but it wasn't like 
in like a sexual way it was like oh she's at her own place she's just being comfortable and also anytime that it did show like naked bits it was brief and it was just like they don't care they're just doing it and what would have been over the top is if they were basically like giggling high school girls like splashing each other in the pool. Let's have a pillow fight. Like basically right, yeah. they didn't they didn't do any of that. It was just like, yep, they're naked. I think if you're going to put fan service in anything for anyone, it should always be natural. It yeah. should like I, I guess for me it's kind of like if you if we were all watching an anime and there was like a shirtless guy and it's like oh he just got out of the shower and he's got like a towel it's not necessarily like oh it's going to be exaggerated it's just like this is something that happens every day it's like oh well this is fan service for me because it's kind of you know funny or cute but for you guys it's like it's not a big deal I'm not distracted I don't mm-hmm. feel like I'm uncomfortable or made to feel uncomfortable yeah exactly like I, I thought the fan service was done fairly well you can definitely tell just because of the way it is that the show was directed from a male gaze point of view and um i guess you could if you wanted to fault it for doing that i suppose i couldn't argue with you but at the same time there are more egregious examples of you know objectification in anime that gunbuster does not do um like sully said and ryan said it's it's very presented in a sort of natural way even though i think some of it can be a little absurd just like like, the big window (laughs) the big window and the fact like whenever like that iconic scene where she like lays down in her bed like the way she's animated is just so unrealistic they just went it was mm -mm. the most effort put into any just like flopping onto your bed scene ever honestly it like like i had to rewatch that scene three times because i was like I'm not crazy, right? This Someone is like look forward to going into work that day. Yeah, <laughs> no, so. and like if you think about it in this context, animation was done by hand back then. Right. Somebody drew each individual cell of mm-hmm. her shirt flying up. Like that was legitimate effort. And and again, 1988. Like they're just they're experimenting at this point. Yeah. Like, fan service was not like an art. At this point, it and if was we're, we're going to talk about fan service evolving into the the culture or the fandom or whatever, I think too maybe from my perspective too, I see it as kind of campy. Like if I'm going to watch something and the fan service is bad, what some person might think as is, oh, this is actually really good. I'm glad I'm here. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. I'm kind of like laughing at it. It's it's like oh anime, oh anime <laughs> with your floppy everything going every which way. I'm, yeah. I've come to expect it. I don't like it. I don't hate it. It's just. Yeah. Take it as it is. You're looking at it from a more absurdist perspective. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Fair also, enough. to make yet another Evangelion reference in this podcast, what does Anno say at the end of every single one of the Rebuild movies? Or rather, what does the character say at the end of every single Rebuild movie? Yeah, Misato. And wait for more fan service in the next in the next installment. Yeah. Um, Ryan, I want you to talk just briefly about um, what you thought was... Um, like how how does this show connect to Evangelion like in what you in what you saw basically just by like artistic inspiration and like yeah basically uh, Noriko was basically Shinji light like she wasn't base she wasn't uh, uh, like lack of confidence for the entire series she got over that rather quickly and like actually trained uh some of the other characters had connections and you could definitely tell that this was like Ano's work because of the art style and the mechs and the characterization and i feel like he probably took a lot of the ideas from this show that he wanted to expand upon but given that it was only short he took those and put them in ava 
just and they worked really well in both like the design of gunbuster was basically an evangelion in space and the characters were really well thought out and evangelion basically just made all of that a little grander with a infinitely more complicated plot Mm -hmm. and i'm a i'm a present a different uh, way of looking at it that personally i thought it was a lot more uh gurren lagan in a certain in certain ways i think noriko is much more simon than she is uh shinji even though there are you know of course there are elements of of simon that are shinji as well but uh like noriko is so much more like bombastic than than um shinji ever was and that simon eventually becomes um, so I thought that was uh, worth noting, and um, I don't know, it's just my opinion that I think the Gunbuster looks a lot more like Gurren Lagann than it does in Evangelion. The facial design, but like the spikiness definitely is Gurren Lagann. For sure, yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of you know, sort of like cross-references uh, yeah. that, that um, both Ava and Gurren Lagann both, <laughs> both either consciously or subconsciously uh, contribute to. Okay. Yeah. Since you're talking a little bit about how it's oh, its connection to Gynax, we might get into this a bit later, but why does it seem that Gynax always have budget problems? Because for a while, uh, Gunbuster is very consistent. Art-wise, there isn't any too crazy animation issues until the final episode. Yeah, the entire thing was black and white. Well, they I read where they said the black and white was a style choice. Like I, can, to... I can totally see that, but, like, Gynax also, you're right, they do have budget issues. Like, Gurren Lagann and Kill a Kill specifically are the two instances I can think of offhand. They pour... Kill a Kill's trigger, though. Yeah, but offshoot of Gynax. Um, they, ha- they pour all of their animation budget into episode one, seven, and the finale. Like, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen Gurren Lagann, episode seven is the giant battle where Kamina dies. And there were so many, there there was like such a big budget in that. Like there were so many mechs on on the field. They were all fighting it out. There was a lot of explosions. Episode seven of Kill a Kill was where Nui appears for the first time and has that giant fight with uh, Ryuko and she goes berserk. Just like they seem to think like that's how people like it best. And I don't know why they do it that way, but that's just... I've seen that consistently across a lot of their shows. But to bring it back to Gun to Gunbuster, one thing that bothered me was the grid they're having in one last grand finale battle, and right when they're going to battle, they give a description of the amount of aliens they kill. Yeah. And I just started staring at the screen. Why are you giving me stats? And the, and the uh, still shots just kind of panning. I, I noticed that too. All right, guys, I'm going to be really, really fair to Gunbuster because I liked all of that and didn't see any budget problems. I didn't, I didn't contribute or attribute rather budget problems to the reason why they did that. I saw that whole scene where they sort of have the um, the operatic music and the more like screenshot style representation of what happened uh, in that battle to just be like, this is this scene is not really that important to the story that we want to tell. So they told it in a more like art house style sort of way. Um, so I mean, but that in a way also we. We just saw that in the last episode as but well. That doesn't fit the tone of the show. At first, the show is very shown and esque, where it's all about the fight scenes, and it's very 
over the top dramatic. That mm-hmm. hard tonal shift, I think, is a wrong choice. Now, if you're able to spread that out um, more like they do in Ava, where they had more time and more episodes to do that, that's great. But yeah. you only have so much time in an OVA. Yeah. And that I think that's a wrong way to go about it. What do you think, Sully? I think it's just more just disjointed than anything. And honestly, when I was watching it, the first episode, I'm like, okay, aliens are the antagonists, they are the driving conflict force. I don't think so. I think and maybe maybe because the aliens, we, as we learn, and I think it's episode three or four, they say they're mindless, they see us as bacteria and they're antibodies, and when you yeah. see the ships, they're, they're organic. These aren't invaders here saying we want the Earth. They're like insects who are just taking over and killing off the species so they can make room for themselves. The yeah. aliens are more like a force of nature. The conflict comes from the characters reacting. It's more of a man versus, you know, environment storyline. It's yeah. like, this is this thing that's causing harm to us. We can't reason with it or use anything. We have to simply, you know, defend ourselves. The conflicts are the interpersonal relationships between Coach, Noriko, Onesama, uh, Jung Freud. Right. <laughs> I love that name way too much. Like, these are these are the conflicts. And yeah. Smisu, the fact that he's here for an episode and she just cannot get over him. These are the conflicts that drive the story and the time. I think that if there's an antagonist, it's more of, like, time. Like, yeah. we're losing time. That whole, those last two episodes, five and six, we really get that idea of more of the existential themes that I guess will later come into Ava mm-hmm. from the six episodes of Ava I have seen. Um, because it's like, I'm back on Earth. My, all my friends are ten years older than me. Um, I think I know that uh, the girl they don't like in school when uh, when Coach dies, uh, Amano. She mentions she's like you're ten years. I'm ten years older. Than Kimiko, you. right? I think that was Kim- her name. The Kimiko is the uh, girl with the glasses. That's her best daughter. friend from okay, school. Yeah, the other the, one's the like bully. The, the bully. bully. Okay. The one that she fights in the first episode. Yeah, I can't remember her name. Um, it's not important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not important. But yeah, Sully, you bring up a great a great thing. That's like Evangelion is not about robots versus angels. Gunbuster is not about robots versus space monsters. Exactly, I love that really like scientific yeah. nomenclature they use. <laughs> they say they say it Uchu Kaiju just yeah, means yeah. space monster. Yeah, and I, and you know what? I think Uchu that's Kaiju. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Just call them something super generic. It, it um, simplifies everything and it makes right. it easier to digest. And it's and it's not about that. It's the the story is about you know man versus mortality. Um, and, like, the interpersonal relationships, just how, like, Evangelion is more about, you know, man versus himself. Yeah. Um, and I say man in the general sense, in the royal we sort of way. So, um... Because we definitely ain't talking about Shinji being a man. Rude. <laughs> I love Shinji. Back off. He's the boy. He's my man. Yeah. To, to go into gender, though, it's kind of interesting comparing Shinji to Noriko, because, as you said, uh, Shinji, to me, from what I've seen, when he gets upset... Mm-hmm. He more internalizes it and takes it in himself, and he kind of backs off. Noriko, you know, sort of gets very emotional, and she expresses when she's sad. Like I said, when it's very melodramatic, but for her, it's I'm upset. I'm going to cry. I'm going to break down. I'm going to express it. I'm going to to broadcast my need for mm-hmm. reassurance. Shinji backs off and says, "I'm worthless. I'm bad. This is wrong." It's yeah. kind of the the sort of two poles of expressing 
uh, distress. Yeah. And also, that's funny because that's reverse gender roles. Where yeah, it is. In, uh, not necessarily. In the West, we tend to say that women are emotional and broadcast their emotions, and men internalize and they become stoic. But Shinji is a very feminized. That's that's male what he means. Yeah, that's. I was about to say. I'm looking at it from a Western perspective. Ah, uh, yeah. he he means exactly that they were basically what we perceive, but. I'd like to segue, since we're kind of running low on time, about the main problem that I had with time distortion. Is that cool with everybody? Yes. Yeah, oh, sure. Are to hear about numbers? Yes. Uh, okay. Get ready for some math, people. Okay. All right, so when they are about to go to sublight speed for the first time, they are, they are told one minute in sublight light speed is equivalent to three months on Earth. But within ten minutes, they totally ruin that because... The, they find her dad's ship. She gets on the ship trying to find her dad. And she's like, wait, it's only been two days since he went missing on our Earth. But I did the math on that. Two days at three months per minute. Her dad should be 360 years in the future. Not like, <laughs> what was this? Around 10. Mm-hmm. And also, when they come back after their 10-minute operation, which was... Or like 10 minute 12 seconds because they went a little over they said oh but it's been six months for us no it should have been a little over two and a half years not six months but ryan the ultimate factor that you must factor into your equation is movie magic plot convenience <laughs> yeah is plot convenience and story I also just didn't understand how they even like justified that i know there's a whole bunch of theories about relativity that goes into that but think about it this way somebody like that door that we're looking at right now for all of our listeners there's a door in front of us um that door starts traveling at light speed if it were going that much slower relatively we would perceive it as basically just slowly inching away whereas they're seeing it as like we are beelining it to these people You'd get there quicker if you just went, like, at a normal pace. Like, <laughs> why is it thinking that because you're going so fast, you're actually traveling relatively slower than everything else? That just didn't make sense to me. Uh, also, to kind of talk about time, um, two things that bugged me was that mission where they say, um, if, if you go over a minute, it's six months, but they're only late by... 12 seconds. 12 seconds? So wouldn't that be like three months or something like that? It was three months, but they would have been late by like a couple weeks. A couple weeks. But so how is it six months? And then also at the very end, when they have to do an even longer uh, travel in relative time where it's, I think it's 12,000 years at the end. Well, that wasn't really explained because they didn't exactly initiate the travel. They were like trying to activate a black hole bomb so i'm gonna give that a little slack because i'm not going to pretend to be an expert on black (laughs) hole math well my my problem is like they say well hopefully we'll come back and they the at the end they sure they do come back to earth yeah and they have that really kind of cheesy ending of welcome welcome home i love that so much i think that's cute but it's like i think back to uh halo 4 yeah when master chief comes back and it's like we 
we don't trust you. Yeah, we yeah. Don't, we don't believe anything you'd say. And I don't think the, the Earth would be like, welcome back. They'd it's be like, who are you people? It's yeah. mentioned that the last character on the welcome back is reversed. So yeah. it, I read the Wikipedia article too. Right I was about now. to say that too. It <laughs> implies it, I, the fact that it's reversed, that they're actually only mimicking the language, and it implies that Japanese is like a dead language by this point, so they don't speak anymore. lying to us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if you think about it, 12,000 years from now, I mean, it's entirely likely that we have, like, a universal language or some languages stop being used. We all speak Esperanto. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, if you guys want to find out what happens 12,000 years after Gunbuster, watch Diebuster. Okay. Because uh, they, they show that they show uh, sort of what Earth's been up to uh, in all of that time. But um, Do those characters come back? Uh, I don't want to say. Okay. I don't want to say. Um, watch Die Buster. It's on Crunchyroll. It's pretty cool. Well, if um, Ryan's done talking about numbers, I want to make a quick note that uh, during one of the scenes towards one of the final episodes, Am uh, Amano is reading uh, No Longer Human by uh, Asamo Dazai, not the Bungo Stray Dogs character, the actual uh, 20th century Japanese author. And it's a book about feeling alienated from society and feeling inhuman. Uh, the sort of like disconnect from everyone else and I think it's very interesting that of all the characters she's the one reading that book because mm -hmm. if any character feels distant it is Amano I mean mm -hmm. everyone refers to her as Onesan except for Coach and the other higher ups mm -hmm. yeah and she's very much even though Noriko is the one who has all the breakdowns and all of the I can't do it Amano is the one who when it when push comes to shove is like I can't do it she's the one who's most emotionally disconnected from the situation mm -hmm. until she kind of realizes the stake she's going to face in playing this role as a pilot for Gunbuster or any of the mechs yeah like during the big fight scene where she like thought she was going to lose coach and then pulled back but then realized like there's nothing I can do. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think I think that's really interesting how they basically make her the main character of the final episode. Yeah. Just to sort of give her her big, like, character moments. You know, they, they made the decision to leave her on Earth so that she could age and so that her character arc could progress to a different place than Noriko's. Mm -hmm. Because there's still only a six-month time difference for Noriko um, she had only she had been in space for fifteen years, but it would have only been six months for her. But um, that takes two characters who up until that point had been in the same timeline as each other, and then make a drastic jump, and then their relationship changes a little bit, but it also stays weirdly the same. And I think the what you can see in that scene is how you know you know people do change over time, but there are also elements of us that always stay the same and always hold on to the same feelings about particular things. How we all like, like they still have a shared past, even though now um, Amano has a much more experienced, sadder, uh, richer life experience than Noriko did. But they still share that that deep connection that they've had for that. Um, they've had for all this time well yeah remember like when she first saw her again like she went into a crowd of people that were coming back and they were like all happy to see her and she beelined for noriko oh of course yeah because i mean how would you feel if you hadn't seen a friend of yours for like 10 years that you really cared about I yeah mean, exactly that was know, a wonderful moment i know that twelve thousand years into the future my friendship for all of you will still be growing so thank you so much Aww. thank you um so yeah, I just wanted to do, um, as we wrap this up, so you, you mentioned, you brought up some points where you thought the, the math of the, of the series wasn't exactly on point, um, but personally, 
I thought stuff like that. While that probably would have bothered me a couple of years ago, watching the series again and really thinking about like, well, what is this series really about? And then thinking about it's it's more you know about interpersonal relationships just in this backdrop of a space opera. So did that really impede your enjoyment of it, or did you still feel like you got something out of it? It bothered me for, like, an episode and a half, and then I just kind of got over it. But, like, I honestly feel like it just would have been a non-issue if they had never explained it, just, like, explained it in a real general sense. Like, because you're going at, like, such a fast pace, we're going to be all moving a lot faster than you. Like, you won't age, just, like explain it in a loose sense and just mm-hmm. not go into so much detail but like no i still really enjoyed the show and it did not it did not impede me enjoying it mm-hmm. like i had issues that i addressed but like honestly overall i give the show like an eight out of ten i really recommend it it's cool good yeah i want to go around real quick just get everybody's takeaway like what they thought about the show and you know how it affected them i guess if it did didn't have to but do I... want to say something or Sully, whatever, whoever. I thought we were going in a circle, so... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I know that I, I watched the first three episodes uh, one night. Uh, I kind of was like, I'll watch one each night this week, and I just sort of was like, oh, I'll watch this one, and this one, and this one, and I had work, so I had to take a break, but, like, it really kept me engaged. I think, even if it is melodramatic, the fact that the emotions do feel very genuine... You get very hooked into the story, and I'm I'm a sucker for for an ending that like like the, the welcome back. Ending. Oh my gosh, yes! <laughs> it, 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 like just that moment, like when they see the lights slowly turn into the into the the words for welcome back. I just was like really like I was touched. So I yeah. it has its faults. It's definitely of its time. But as someone who enjoys things, especially anime from the seventies and eighties, and that sort of aesthetic and feel that they have i would say it's a solid out of 10 and it's something you should watch if you really want to kind of time travel to that Mm. more simpler time and you know the the narrative is is kind of timeless like it's just about you know friends facing you know huge odds together and like getting through you know struggles you know as a team but like real quick segue just about that like welcome back bit Think about it in a complicated sense. They projected welcome back on the earth. They would have had to have like made sure there were buildings mm-hmm. like large enough to project that amount of light over multiple countries. So if you think about it in that perspective, they were considered like they saved the human race. These people 12,000 years from now are still here because of what they did mm-hmm. so if you think about it in that sense they became like legends pretty much like honestly like twelve thousand years is a heckin long time i yeah. was imagining like the idea of like japanese being a dead language do you think there's just been like generations of people learning japanese in preparation for their return <laughs> so it's like well, yes. welcome back uh, we'll be your translators until we can like teach you everything from the bottom up yeah Maybe. Until you learn Estonian like the rest of us. <laughs> El- Esperanto. Esperanto, I'm sorry. Um, I would say overall I enjoyed the series, though I would say it's more of a 7 out of 10 for me. Um, I think I would love a remake of Gumbuster where they got a little bit more time because I felt things were a little bit more half-baked with the side characters that weren't our main two. Mm-hmm. Um and I think also I would have liked um, things to give it, give it a little bit more time. 
Um, like the whole <laughs> bit with Smith. Uh, I, th- I, I think uh, he should have been introduced early and had been there a bit more, a couple more episodes. Uh, then it wouldn't have been so jarring if she had been pining over his death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for just because you met him over he, one day. He is her Kauru. <laughs> yeah. feel, feel free to interject on this, though, Austin. And actually, he did have silver hair, didn't he? No. no. Silver, long. except for one streak the yellow of blonde streak. Yeah. that I could not understand. <laughs> but, um, Feel free to correct me yeah. on this, though. Like, you mentioned wanting a Gunbuster reboot. Wasn't that the original intention of Die Buster? Um, no. Uh, Die Buster was always intended to be a sequel. Um, it was made for the 20th anniversary of Gunbuster. Uh, it was directed by the guy who made uh, FLCL. So, um, Kazuya Suramaki is his name. And uh, he had been working with Anno... I think I think he did work on Gunbuster, maybe in a very small sense, but he would have been very young at that point. Um, so they wanted to do like a sort of celebratory sort of Gunbuster universe thing, and Die Buster is a sequel that is way more Gurren Lagann, way more fully <laughs> than uh, than Gunbuster is. <laughs> like if you're looking for something that is tonally similar to Gunbuster, Die Buster is really not not for you even though i would recommend checking it out it's more of something that i would recommend to fans of gurren lagan and gunbuster is something that i would more recommend to fans of evangelion but you know i love both of those both gurren lagan and eva so so much that i would recommend both gunbuster and diebuster to anybody mm. what, would, what would you personally rate this show um personally you know i think i think it does there are um it's it's so wonderful for its time, and it was so influential on the people that made it and were there. Um, really, without Gunbuster, I don't think um, Anno would have been able to sort of hammer out his ideas for Evangelion, at least conceptually. I know there's a lot of you know personal things that Anno had going on in his life that really shaped the way Evangelion turned out. Um, but in this, he was really able to experiment, and it seems a lot more. It seems like this is Anno in his younger and more raw state before he sort of, you know, had his spiraling sort of self-deprecation that was brought on, you know, a couple years later uh, with his very, very stressful personal life. Um, And just to see him making something while he was, like, excuse me, like a happier person is a very pure thing to look at. And sort of makes Evangelion sadder because you can see just the tonal difference uh, in the two shows. It's like Evangelion can be read as a very sort of cynical show. It's almost nihilist in a way. A little Actually, bit, it's yeah. very nihilist. I mean, I, I read Evangelion as an overall hopeful show, but that is just one interpretation. Um, but Gunbuster is much more pure, much more like... Um, it's got its sad moments, but it is definitely a, a positive, sort of uplifting show. Yeah, I would yeah. say the characters in Gunbuster are more uh, have a more positive outlook, and there's much more of a happier ending mm-hmm. overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 like, and as entertaining as Evangelion is, Gunbuster is a lot more fun. Yeah, and like if you want to look at it like that, actually, I just I just thought of this. Um, Jung, compared to like Evangelion, where without spoiling anything from the end of Ava, everybody is pretty much, like, scattered during the end of Evangelion. They're not unified at all. Like, Shinji is on his own trying to stop what's happening. And in this, um, 
they're together and then they're heading in to activate the black hole bomb and Jung is like I don't want to live in a time without you guys like if you eventually do come back I won't be here so she was willing to risk her life in order to stay close to her friends Mm -hmm. whereas they were just like we love you don't throw your life away because you're literally going to die right and I thought that was very Gurren-Lagan-esque like I was kind of thinking of Keaton in those moments a little bit like when Keaton sacrifices himself and Gurren Lagan towards the very end uh sorry for for that brief spoiler but uh we'll put up a spoiler finger (laughs) happy uh happy uh 10th anniversary of Gurren Lagan guys really was it really yesterday yeah 10 years Gurren Lagan yesterday probably should do a podcast about Gurren Lagan soon do a podcast about Gurren Lagan but um and one of the just real quick to wrap up my personal thoughts uh, one thing that I really like structurally about Gurren Lagann that Gunbuster does as well is allowing their characters to age and then us see them at different points in their lives because I think that adds to a you know adds to making the character you know richer because they they change with age but you can see how they stay the same yeah mm-hmm. and uh, getting like the time skip in Gurren Lagann is probably one of my favorite things about the show because we see Simon as a child and then we see him you know as an adult. And how how much he is the same as he always has been, and how much he has changed. I also like when shows do that in general, mm-hmm. just because like with Gurren Lagann and with this, it's like with a lot of shows, arcs are like, if you think about it, crisis after crisis after crisis. Like these people are fighting for their lives for years at a time. Like Gurren Lagann, be, yeah. they get through arc one, and then it's what a seven year time skip. I yes. think. Yeah, it's like okay, they're at peace for seven years. They're actually having a life. They rebuilt civilization. Then the second arc happens, and it's another crisis. This is a similar way. It's like episode five, they had the big fight with the aliens to hold them back. Then 15 years later, it's time for the other final battle where they once again just like wipe them out once and for all and preserve humanity. Mm -hmm. It's not like they've been steadily fighting them for like eons. Yeah. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, So I think that probably wraps up our thoughts on Gunbuster. I know we... we, uh, we mentioned uh, Evangelion and Gurren Lagann and Die Buster. I would recommend all those shows to you um, if you have not um, seen any of them, if you enjoyed Gunbuster. Um, and if you have seen those shows and you haven't seen Gunbuster, uh, go check it out. Unfortunately, it is out of print. Um, hopefully, it will be back in print at some point in the future. Uh, apparently, the movie is getting a, uh, a reprinting pretty soon by a new company. It was put out by Bondi a couple years ago on Blu-ray. But I would 0 out of 10 recommend that movie because it cuts out way too much. Jung Freud is in it is in it throughout but only has one speaking line, so they basically nix her entire character and it's really weird. So uh, 0 out of 10 for that movie. Also, yeah. you can find Gurren Lagann still on Netflix, I believe. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Crunchyroll. And Crunchyroll. You can find Die Buster on Crunchyroll. Mm-hmm. Evangelion is still tragically not available for streaming. Right, yeah. And, think, uh, yeah, Gunbuster is also not available for streaming. I, I think in this incident, in this uh, situation, uh, we would recommend for Ava and for Gunbuster... Uh, to go to uh, certain places on the internet, maybe certain dark, or see if you like see if you can find them at your local library. Like, yeah. I went to the I went to my local library when I was home over for spring break, and like, you'd be surprised what you can find at your mm-hmm. library. Just nobody goes to their library anymore. So shout out to your local library, right? And you know, 
I want to thank, uh, or rather, I want to say that here at Borderline, we are always going to advocate for you guys to use the official sources first, but in this case where, you know, stuff is out of print, well, what can you do? It's basically impossible to find. This is kind of going back to our first episode with Perfect Blue, too. We really need to start talking about things that people can legally stream. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, because out of, the, out of the two sort of analysis podcasts we've done, or discussion podcasts, rather... Uh, zero out of two have been legally available because they've both been out of print. Maybe we should talk about something new eventually. Well, I think this oh, is the Austin. perfect time to plug what we're next going to talk about. I'm, I'm really, I'm not sure when exactly this episode is going to be released, but at some point we are going to be doing a um, a um, season preview where we're going to watch the first episodes of a handful of shows that are premiering in this season. Uh, the season I'm referring to, spring 2017. We're also going to be doing a live reaction podcast to the first episode of season two of Attack on Titan, which, which has all, come out. It is yeah. already out at this point, but we're going to be doing that podcast very, very soon. It has been killing me because we were supposed to do that episode before this one even, but we all had a, a busy schedule, and I've been like dying to watch it just to see how they've done it. And we're going to have myself and Austin on this, as mm-hmm. well as Tori and Andrew, yep. and among the four of us, Andrew is not the biggest fan of the show. Tori and Austin enjoy it moderately, and I've read all the manga so far, so we have a wide array of perspectives. Yeah, we're really excited to do this podcast, and it might be out before this episode, I'm not sure, um, so you guys may have already listened to it at this point. But um, You might have skipped through time yourself. Maybe. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not 12,000 years. But, and um, if you are a listener who has unlocked the secret to time travel, hit me up. Yeah, please let us all know as soon as possible. Is my life worth living in the future? Please tell me. (laughs) Yeah, send us a message on our Facebook page if you have uncovered the secrets of time travel. Our Facebook page is Borderline Panels. You can find that on Facebook. Um, This episode will also be uploaded to podbean.com and iTunes as well, probably on YouTube. Um, As always, I'm your host, Austin. Do you guys have any closing remarks? Austin, what if I want to talk to you specifically and not just borderline panels? Where oh. could I find you? The best place to find me is on Twitter at BebopShock um, or on my YouTube channel at BebopShockInfinite. Um, and I will be uploading some new videos from my personal projects up there pretty soon, including a video about Evangelion pretty soon. Uh, I technically have a Twitter. It's at Ryan McEntee. I never use it, though, so... Maybe you should start using it for our lovely podcast. Yeah, maybe I should, but I also... I stream on Twitch occasionally at um, one RDM gamer, Mm -hmm. and we all go to local cons as well, so find us there. Yeah. And you can catch me on the Twitter at Calvacun, C-A-L-V-A-K-U-N, and I need to actually fix it because I forget I have a Twitter. But that's pretty much my Me only... Too. <laughs> so yeah, I'm updating my social media so I can engage with the fans I don't have. <laughs> exactly. We always want to reach out to the fans we don't have. Mm-hmm. And I am not on Twitter. <laughs> that's alright, Bill. <laughs> but I would suggest if you like older shows uh, like Gunbuster or Perfect Blue... Check out licensors like Discotech or Nozomi. They put out some great stuff. Um, they put out Lupin the Third, uh, Rose of Versailles, which is a great uh, show. 
uh, Cardcaptor Sakura. Please check them out. They put out great things. Shout out to Discotech for being the only company that licensed the live-action Yatterman movie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we, we talked about that. I mentioned it briefly, and uh, Nozomi put out Char's, counter, Char's Counter-Attack just a couple of months ago. Yep. So uh, that's another classic uh, 1988 robot anime. But that's it for us, guys. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Hopefully we'll see you very, very soon. Everybody say bye. 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 Bye.